0: Ah, uh, welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Tom Surzak. That's right, Tom Surzak with his new album, Call Me Ishmael, in stores now—or not in stores, but online and on Apple Podcasts—and uh, not Podcasts, Apple, whatever the music thing is called now. It used to be called iTunes, Google, all Spotify, all the thing. I think it's a great album. He's a great nail member from BLC of America. So Tom Surzak in a second, but before we talk any further, we got to tell you about the original Energy Focus with their N-Focus color tuning lighting system. Greg, bypass LED
1: tubes. On today's show, you're going to hear a little more about Tom. And he talked about, you know, his background in the specialty lighting market, in addition to music, but specialty lighting. And what that means is he kind of focused on one thing and he kept a real tight, narrow profile and said, I wanna be in the specialty market. Similar to what Energy Focus is doing. They're not saying we're everything to everyone, but they do have an awesome product. And when they get it, they deep dive it and they figure it out and make it the best it can be. And for a retrofit solution, if you want human centric lighting, and Focus is the ticket. You can reuse your existing fixture and just put a new tube in that's dimmable and color changing, easy to control with their control system or, or controller that you mount on the wall. And a lot cheaper than buying a brand new fixture and all that fancy stuff you got to do.
0: So the original, energyfocus.com, dot com, baby. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, of which Energy Focus and Tom from BLC are both vendor and member, members of that association. For right now, we got Tommy Surzak coming in hot. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Tom Sirzak. Wow. Thank you.
1: Say hello to Greg Eric. Hey, Greg. How you doing? Good, Tom. Thanks for coming on. And for those who just listened to it, Mike held up a straight out of quarantine t-shirt that looked like straight out of Compton t-shirt.
0: Yeah, straight out of quarantine. So, Tom, before we uh, um, get into it, I want Scotty just to... Uh, to cue up one of the songs from your new album. Oh, cool. So, Greg, right now you're in the Shangri-La Hotel in uh, in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Remember that beautiful lounge singer?
1: I do, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, she's about to do a duet with Tom Surzak.
1: Oh, she is, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah. There's Tommy.
1: This is Tom going? It's Tom.
0: It's my favorite song from the album, Tom. Okay, cool just wait you gotta wait for the for the duet so good sounds just like that girl in, 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 in Hong Kong I've listened to this song hundreds of times
1: and you do that with them
2: too
0: this is beautiful music Tom now listen to this listen to this turn it up a bit Scott
1: I feel so burned out. Ooh. I can't get my mind off of you. You know what I'm talking
0: about? I do. I do. <laughs> All right, kill it. So, Tom, before we get into light bulbs and everything else, who is that? That was my daughter. Get out of here.
2: She's She has a um, she has a professional a cappella group in, in L.A. And um, she actually hooked me up with everybody to get this started i mean she knew the engineer the engineer knew the drummer and the bass player and the keyboard player and then he put everything together so she started it all so i needed her to do some song on this album and um we rearranged the whole thing to make it a duet it wasn't a duet when i wrote it but you know when and when i wrote it it was without the jazz trumpet without that whole jazzy feel but we changed everything around at the recording studio We put the trumpet in, we made it a duet, back and forth duet, so it's really, in fact I was posting it on Facebook the other day, here's the acoustic version that I turned in as the demo, and here's what we wound up making the song as. And it's quite a contrast between, you know, what it started at and what it finished at.
1: What was the name of that song, or is the name of that song, sorry?
2: Strung Out. Strung
0: Out. Out. yeah it. it's such a good you know what that's a good song period that's not oh that's my favorite song from your album that's a good song like that's a solid i don't even know what type of music lounge music that whatever it you want to call it that's a solid piece of music um and i want to compliment you on that there's a couple more on is the so- album too um what inspired you to write this thing
2: well so yeah I've been writing music since I've been 12 I mean this is my hobby that I've been doing for a very long time and I used to play in all kinds of rock bands and stuff when I was growing up and I wrote songs all the way through and college and even when I got out I was playing in a lot of local clubs in California once I moved out there and uh, I went to some songwriting camps I think it was 2014 I went to Steve Earle songwriting camp in upstate New York called Camp Copperhead. And I must have met a hundred different singer songwriters. I mean, I really found my lost tribe when I went there. Everybody, everybody was a singer songwriter. Everybody was a guitarist. And um, they all started putting out albums. And I was like, geez, I'm going to have to keep up with the Joneses. So uh, if, if everybody here can put out an album, I can do it, too. So I started on the whole process about three years ago at Thanksgiving. We were just sitting around the Thanksgiving table talking, and my daughter came up with the idea. She goes, well, why don't I just put you in contact with the engineer that does all of the uh, Lola's work and see, uh, you know, if he can help put this thing together. And really, that's how it all started. And I met with this guy, Brett Grossman, oh, about two years ago. Uh, at a restaurant and we just sketched everything out proverb- proverbially on a napkin. We said, "Okay, here's what we want to do." We put it all down on a napkin. And uh the whole thing came together. It was and it was listen, the journey is much more fun than the finished product. The whole concept of going into the studio, bringing all the musicians and teaching them all the music, recording all the songs, that was really a blast. I mean, the finished product is great, but the process of doing everything was so much fun. I'm I'm ready to do a second one. I liked it so much.
1: How many songs have you written in your life?
2: Hundreds, hundreds. I, well, I, this I did, is your. It's,
1: it's, pre, this sorry, is your first, first album.
2: Yeah, it's the first time I've ever decided to take it to that level. I mean, I've always would play them out live, uh, but I never thought about putting it down on an album and uh, until I went to that camp and I I met all these people and they were doing it. And I thought, gee, if they can do this, why can't I do this? And, you know, I'm not going to get any younger. So uh, I guess I'm a late bloomer on all of this, but why not? So I did it. And it's just getting out there. I I released it um, July 24th. And so it's it's starting. It's it's on the charts. It's it's been hovering on the AMA charts somewhere between 220 and 180 or something to that effect. So it's but it's on the charts. And there was a uh, jam band chart that came out yesterday. Relix Jam Band it came out at uh, debuted at 26, which was kind of cool. Uh, and I, I just got that yesterday. And uh, there's, you know, Dylan's on it and Elvis Costello and Steve Earle and uh, just all kinds of people that you would know. And so I was pretty honored that I got up to like 26 on a, on, on this jam band uh, chart. So I thought that yeah. played by about hmm, probably about 60, 70 radio stations across Across North America, I used a, um, I have a marketing company working with me. And, uh, you know, we've been promoting it to a lot of radio stations. So it is getting a lot of, you know, small college station and small, you know, AAA station type of airplay, but it's getting airplay.
1: And of these, you said a couple hundred songs or hundreds that you've written, were all of them on this album recently written since that 2014 camp? Or did you pull back from old stuff you wrote when you are teenager, or 20s, 30s, 40s, anything like that?
2: There's a combination. The um, Good question. Um, there's about four that are within the last year that I wrote. That particular song I wrote uh, just before uh, the album. I think I wrote that one. Roll the dice, top of the world, and there's one other in there that I wrote real recently. But some of them go back to the '70s. There's nice. a couple of songs in there, 1977, 79. That that time frame. So, you know, I I there's one we did a video on called uh, Do um, Not Do You Know My Name, but uh, 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 it's 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 it. We did it live in the studio and um, faces in the crowd that's the one. And we we did that live in the studio. I think I wrote that back in '78, and uh, that was really a challenge because I had to teach all the musicians the song and we had to record it and we had to video it probably all by the third take. So I was pretty nervous on that one. I wasn't quite, it's 10 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. So I'm over there drinking a beer at 1030, just uh and they're looking at me. I remember the girl who's a violin player. She goes, oh, you're a real rock star, aren't you? I'm like, stop it, <laughs> because they're, they're <laughs> all eating and drinking coffee, and I'm slamming a beer just to make sure that I'm going to be no nerves, and I'm going to get it out smoothly, which, you know, by the <laughs> third take, it came out.
1: And what do you classify yourself as The type of music?
2: Uh, I think it's more rock. I mean, it is more classic rock than, than anything else. That's why I was surprised, you know, uh, Michael, when, when, when you like the one song, because that one song is really an anomaly. It's more of a jazz song or kind of a, a jazzy song where everything else is a little bit more rockish. Uh, you know, I uh, the first three, three, four songs come out and they they're very Springsteen sounding type of rock songs where where that one really is a jazz song and i think there's a couple that also go in different directions there's an americana type of song and there's maybe an eagles type of song but most of them are pretty straight rock type of things
0: yeah you know i kind of felt it was like a i would i i i i, I got the Bruce Springsteen thing a little bit but i was feeling a little bit more bon jovi actually than, than bruce springsteen really? yeah I mean just my own my own opinion uh, there's one song in there that that's very bon jovi-esque but let me ask you when you say i don't remember which song it is but when you say pass me the hooch what are you drinking <laughs> 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 so um so that's a song let, let me tell you first
2: of all that's moon but first of all that's a song that comes out of a rock opera I wrote. So I wrote this rock opera. I started writing it in high school and then I put it on the shelf and then I finished writing it around '12. there's about 35 songs in this called the Celatoids And uh, I needed a song for the CD and I thought it stood on its own two feet very, very well. But the uh, the lead character in that song is is modeled after a guy called Kid Shalene. Do you remember who Kid Shalene is? No, man. Probably not. There's a movie called Movie called Cat Baloo, and uh, Cat Baloo had this drunken cowboy played by Lee Marvin, and Lee Marvin won an Academy Award, Best Actor, for this guy called Kid Chalene. They hired this guy, and he turned out to be an absolute drunk, but he could only perform when he was drunk. And so, I...
0: Sounds like basically
2: great Basically, this... Yeah, basically... <laughs> with the other story I just told you about doing faces in the crowd. But anyway, so uh, so the, sto- this, the, the song is modeled after this guy, Kit Shaleen, who is the hero of the song. And, you know, he's trying to dry out and they, they keep pulling him back into, it'll you know, solve whatever the problem is. It's crazy Jesus Christ from outer space type of theme, But uh, I thought it it worked real well by itself. But yeah, that when I when I say pass me the hooch, it it was we're talking about moonshine, and we're talking about a guy that can't perform unless he's drunk.
1: Now you are a hardcore lighting guy, but before I get into that, I just a little bit more on the the songwriting. Do all all of your songs kind of come together in the same manner in which you? How, how do I guess? How what's your process like? How to do, how does it go?
2: You know, that's a great question because uh, um, one of the things that I I write mostly most of the time I write in a linear type of where I start with a uh, a melody verse and I work from the verse through to the chorus to the bridge and, and and that type of concept and but what happens when you do it that way is sometimes your choruses aren't very strong. so some of the last songs that I wrote for the album, uh, Roll the dice and toppled, I actually work from the inside out where. I wrote the choruses and then I went backwards and wrote the verses after I put the choruses in because that way I thought I could get a much stronger chorus to the songs and I actually think it worked. But uh, um, the idea when you're a songwriter is you want to change it up and you want to try to do it different every time. You don't want to do it the same way every time. You try not to plagiarize yourself. You try to keep trying to come up with something original and something different and uh you're looking for that spark you're looking for that you know lightning bolt to hit and sometimes it does a lot of times it doesn't but the um i think the most important thing if you're a songwriter is you got to write a lot of songs because you're going to throw away most of them most of them are going to be terrible but occasionally you're going to get some really good stuff and that's what you're looking for is like for every you know 10 or 20 that you write most of them might be just absolute garbage, but you're gonna get you're gonna get better at it the more you work at it. Just like anything you do, the more you work at it, and the more that you kind of reflect on what's good and what's bad. Bingo. Go ahead. You're looking at me like you got thumbs up. You need something.
1: <laughs> That's just our little communication. I have a big question we for you. Use so. for a, oh, why do yeah? Why don't you go, Mike?
0: Play out your big
1: one if it's music related. Mine's going to get into lighting.
0: Okay, let me just finish one off here. So I interview a lot of musicians on my life show. I don't know how many it's been, but like at least a dozen. Okay, and we often talk about how there's not a lot of good albums coming out now and the idea of an album, album art. The album art on your album, by the way, is very interesting. Um, My kids like your album. My wife likes your album. And my daughter, we downloaded a couple of the songs to her player. So that's a compliment, bud. Um, Thank you. But, yeah, but you know what, you know, what's interesting is that you see often artists say this, I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to do something unique. I'm trying to do something, this and that. I actually think and you tell me if I'm wrong, I think the most successful way to make music is to take your most popular song and try to duplicate it over and over and over again. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, two of the most popular songs of all time, I think are wild thing and Funky Cold Medina. And those songs almost sound identical to one another. Like if you put one on, you might think it's the other. And if you put the other on, you might, you know what I'm saying? It's like almost like that's Tone Loke's most famous rap songs. And you can't really tell the difference between the two. It's kind of like the same thing. And there's certain melodies that work, and there's a certain sound that works for you. And I think it's a mistake for artists to try to change it up. I mean, the great ones, fine, the Beatles, Prince, but, you know, very few people. Uh, people are in that those kind of categories where it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna change something up big time. I mean um, I agree you know, with Guns N' Roses tried to change it up and they could they just stick to rock man. You know, so there's uh what do you what do you think about that? I always hear artists say that I think it's wrong. I think if you're a struggling artist and you're trying to get out and there's a couple good songs that have hit with people, why not go down that path?
2: No, I, I do think that there's different limitations into people's style so you want to stay you're going to sound like you no matter what right but i i think what what i was talking about is you're you're constant as an artist you're constantly looking to and it's how do you stay within your boundaries and still be creative i mean i have a limited vote so i can't you know i can't go too far that's my vote range. work but you want to um you want to be creative within your boundaries and come up with something that's original and unique, and yet that's interesting for people to listen to. And that's, I think, is part of the challenge when you're writing things. Right? Is how do you do that? And um, it's just a form of escapism. Is is when when you write songs, you're you're alone by yourself and you're concentrating and you're trying to. And a lot of it's emotion too. It's not just It's not just all mathematical. You've got a combination of emotions and feel going into it uh, on on top of everything else. So you're looking for that spark and you're looking to capture it. And I've I've gotten to a point where I I use the phone right now and try to capture a lot of little things as I'm writing ideas down using the cell phone so that I don't lose the idea of some of the emotions that I'm trying to, to, to convey. Even if I don't have the lyrics all sorted out, I'll get the feel of what the melody should be in a new song. And I'm constantly writing. I mean, it just never stops. If you've been doing it and, and this is your hobby, you just do it all the time. It's like a painter. They just paint all the time.
1: Now, in your biography here, it says, being a New Yorker, I guess I'm drawn to offbeat and colorful characters, so I like to include them in my songs in my new CD they range from stalkers, smugglers and outlaws to to liars, losers and thieves. Mike, does that sound like any industry you know? Colorful characters. <laughs> oh, I've been Offbeat. in the what?
0: Light-
1: yeah. That was the point. So so
0: you know that's what Greggy's is saying is that um and and that's a good segue. So how is, you know, for lighting wise? You know, how is your you said you gave up your music or you put it on hold. So I think it was the words you used in your profile. You put it on hold yeah. to become a member of Nailed and to join the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Then then yeah. you had the honor of sitting on the board, Tom. So why? uh why what, what, what is it about what is it about lighting? Like how can we segue here? Is there anything in that you've learned about music from lighting or lighting about music?
2: Well, there's a couple of different things, right? First of all, lighting is. It, it, there's so many different aspects. To lighting. I mean, I, we were just talking about themes, right? And, uh, but when you look at at, at at lighting and all the different markets that lighting touches into, it, it touches into. There's 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 so many. I mean. I grew up on the, the specialty side of the market, where you guys mostly grew up on on the general lighting side of the market. So my eighty twenty is flipped from from most of the people are nailed. But I grew up in the uh, uh, theater xenon, uh, the the stage studio metal halide, the semiconductor uh, mercury lamps for micro lithography or for epitaxial reactors, or you know the different types of lamps they use for uh, chemical analyzers and blood analyzers. So I grew up on all the real, you know, technical type of products. And it can go on and on and on and on. You know, I was involved in with ballys for pinball uh, machine bulbs way back when they were still making pinball machines. I was involved in uh, Detroit with all different types of wedge-based lamps that they were using in, in automobile dashboards and stuff or in aviation type of cockpits. So it... it there's so many crazy applications where they're looking at the wavelengths of lights and the component of light not just for general illumination but for you know especially aspects and one of the things i've always said about light bulbs is that every light bulb has a story and you know when you when you get to writing songs or when you start talking about light bulbs or anything you want to get to the story on on each one of these things so if, if You know, I talk to you about uh, microscope bulbs. I can tell you a story about almost every type of microscope bulb, why it's used, and what was the purpose of using that particular bulb. Um, And and it goes on and on. I mean, we do things like that for blood analyzing. Story on every single blood analyzing bulb, why it was designed a certain way what they're looking for in terms of output, what wavelengths are important, what's the problem with noise, what's the problem with drift. drift. And uh, if you go to a, to a, to a song, you, same thing. It's like we were talking about with, with this guy, uh, uh, Kid Chalene. There's a story behind every song. There's a story behind every light bulb. So that's kind of the the way that I look at it. It's... it's um, and and I applied a lot of what I do in in songwriting and what I do for music when I got into the lighting industry. I mean, it's really uh, it's been a long journey in this lighting industry. I started in 1978 with Osram, right? and I've been in it ever since. I haven't, you know, not. I was the young guy in the industry. Now I'm like the old guy in the industry.
1: <laughs> what got you into it? How did you get involved with Osram in 1978?
2: Uh. I was selling computers for one year, was working for a company called Burroughs in upstate New York, and uh, that wasn't going to go too well. I I had a real bad vision of where my future was going to go with Burroughs selling computers in upstate because I was in the mid-Hudson Valley. And they assign you either... um, manufacturing or like banks or schools i got assigned manufacturing and there's only one big manufacturer in the mid-hudson valley in upstate new york and that's ibm and i'm and everybody's brother or sister or cousin works for ibm and it's like there's no way i'm going to sell against ibm there there's not a chance so i i lasted about a year with with burroughs and i i was doing pretty good selling calculators but Came onto the market with their little calculator and I was like, can't even sell against these calculators. So I got to do something different. And I went to uh, an employment agency. They sent me to this company called Macbeth Sales. And I remember the interview. The guy held up an FCS lamp, a little five pin halogen lamp. He says, Do you think you can sell this? And I said to myself, After trying to sell computers and calculators, absolutely not a problem. He said, Fine, you're hired. So, I took this job with Macbeth Sales, and within a year, they were bought by Osram and they evolved from being Macbeth Sales to Osram Sales USA. When I started with Osram, Macbeth Sales, there's less than 10 people there. And well, you know the story of what, what happened there. I mean, they changed in Pennsylvania and they just became a monster company. But at the time, they were this tiny little. German import company that uh, nobody had really heard of in the United States. And we had to pioneer the name. And it was a blast. I, at 22 years old, was traveling the United States and knocking on doors and trying to convince people to buy Osram microscope bulbs and studio bulbs and had a lot of fun doing it and was able to travel the whole country and, and even Europe at the time. Not a lot of people at 22 get to do that.
0: For sure. So I have a question for you. So you're you're from the specialty side. Now, this is true of all lighting. So in the past, there would be a product group would come out. So pre-LED, product group would come Mm -hmm. out. NEMA Mm -hmm. would make standards for it. So you'd have Mm -hmm. F39T5HO830K. Had to be this long, Mm -hmm. bi-pin on the ends, and had to have this phosphor and this color and all this sort of stuff in order to be considered that lamp. And then people would then manufacture that lamp, and that lamp would have a life cycle of twenty years or thirty years or whatever it was. And that was even more true of the specialty lamp market, right? So yes, where, you, no. what's that?
2: Yes, yes, and no.
0: Well, so now you have like number seven twenty-two miniatures or whatever you know, all those kind of different kinds of bulbs that go in aircraft mm-hmm. and go in signal lamps and elevators and all this kind of stuff. And there's still a lot of those out there, actually, believe it or not. But that's the uh, but the question for you is do you think that the the led uh, the lighting market abandoned standards to its benefit or to its peril because we've abandoned standards for sure
2: I think there's going to be a problem I think when we had that one other uh, uh, podcast on legacy lighting I, I I brought up that there was just on base types there's like over a hundred and 60 different types of ANSI base types, which is one of the standards, right? Especially they use it. American, American Na- National Standards Institute, ANSI. But uh, I think there's like 160 different base types. The vast majority they don't have LED versions for right now. And I don't think they're going to have LED version because, you know, they have to go through all the testings and make sure that they can withstand the heat. And a lot of them can't withstand the heat. So, you've got a real problem coming with what are you going to do. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy happening in the lighting market where as we're moving into LEDs, a lot of the people that were making parts for light bulbs are dying because they don't have the demand to make these parts anymore. As the part suppliers die, eventually the lamp manufacturers can't make lamps anymore. So you're going to have a whole large group of lamps, especially lamps, that you're not going to have LED replacements for because you just can't. You can't put LEDs in every one of these bases right now because they can't handle the heat, they can't produce the light, or the type of light that you need from it is very, very, you can't achieve with an LED. An LED is typically mono- Monochromatic where, you know, halogen lamps are, you know, you got a full spectrum. If you're going to do blood analyzing, for example, you need like eight different specific wavelengths. You can't get that with an LED. LEDs will shift. You don't get that with the halogen lamp. You're going to get noise. You're not going to get that with that. So there's a whole series of things you can't do. And that's just one specific application. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications that you're just not going to be able to do with LEDs. And they're killing off the the part suppliers, so you're just going, you're going to have this big hole. So I do think it's at their peril that, uh, you know, in the the race to get LEDs into the market, uh, you're killing off uh, a lot of the legacy products and you're not going to have real good replacements for them. And this is why when we had our discussion on legacy, I was very pro about letting the market dictate and not letting government jump in and really goose it. Because if you, as it is right now, we've got a problem. But if you're going to goose it and start legislating in terms of, well, you know, you've got to have this type of lumens per watt type of thing, you're just going to speed up the conversion process and you are going to create a big, big empty hole in the marketplace where people are going to have sockets to fill and there's going to be nothing to fill them.
1: Yeah, that's a market that, you know, Mike, I don't, I don't sell a lot of these specialty lights. I do if people ask for them and then I source them and find them. Sure. But who, how does it typically go, Tom? Like, are, are you, is manufacturers of this product typically selling to end users or is it, uh, you know, like a microscope? How, how many of our customers have, I might have one that has 10 microscopes, you know, but well, that's not a,
2: it's changed. Amazon has is, is, is changed the landscape, right? Because, um, well, first of all, take a step back. You know the parade okay. law, right? So you've got an 80-20 rule that's out there. And let's say 80% of the market is general lighting. Well, that means 20% is specialty lighting. Well, how big is the lighting market? How many billion dollars is that? I mean, they're talking $30, 40000000000 billion in lighting. Tell me how big the specialty market is. A couple of
1: billion. Is it, is it 20% of the lighting? I don't know. I yeah, in uh, my business, with, uh, but yeah,
2: you, you play the numbers, the law of large numbers always will split 80, 20 and the specialty market is definitely 20%. So, you know, you, I, I, I think there's a, a, a big, big problem coming in terms of, you know, how you're going to handle some of these applications where you're just not going to have products in the future. Um, where are we going on this? What was, what was the... Uh, well,
1: well, well, who makes who makes them? Like, What are the manufacturers that make specialty lamps right now that actually make them and can get them? And then who are they selling to? Are they going right to the end user now? Or are they still working through distribution?
2: Amazon changed that landscape. So everything used to go through distribution, right? So you used to go to... In the microscope markets, you would major micros. just use that as an example mike yeah. mike and every market breaks down the same way you're going to have your three or four big manufacturers and then you're going to have distributor slash dealer in in and every major city that then would resell out to the end users and um but that's not happening anymore that way a lot of the spare part supply has gone out through Amazon, at least the onesie twosie stuff. So they really disrupted everything and um, uh, flattened, flattened the whole marketplace. So it's not working the way that it used to. But traditionally, that's the way it went. And uh, you have to adapt to what the new norms are in the marketplace. I think... I think you still, you still need the big distributors out there because in my mind, Amazon, even for as much as they're selling and people are selling on it, is mostly moving onesie twosies. When people buy an Amazon, they buy onesie twosies and distribution buys in bulk. So you still need people out there that are going to buy in bulk. And one of my big, Uh, talks always when I ran Ushio for, for a long time is people the onesie twosie you don't have to know who the person is you're buying from at Amazon you're blind to who you're buying from but if you're selling large numbers if you're selling bulk it comes down to relationships that's the thing that wins all the ties if you know the people you're selling and they know you but they don't know your competitor that well, you're going to win that tie.
0: Sometimes. So,
2: not all the time. Okay. It, you can you take whatever percentage you want, right? You could say you're going to lose 20% of the time because they got such a better price or a better product you're going to lose. And you're going to win 20% of the time because you got such a better product or such a better price you're going to win. The rest of the time, that other 60%, it's a tie. And you're going to win the tie because of relationships. And, but again, when you're selling bulk, when you're selling big volumes, you're not going to sell the big volumes on Amazon. You still need that type of distribution system out there. There's less and less and less of it, but you still need it. And because uh, if you want to sell pallets, that's how you're going to have to do it.
0: Tom, and, the, uh, oh, let me, I'm going to interrupt you here. Where, is there anybody in America that's manufacturing miniature halogen and incandescent bulbs? Yes. Oh, there is. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. You know them?
2: (laughs) I've been in this market for 40, 50 years. Of course I do. (laughs) You want to tell us who it is? Sure. I mean, there's, I mean... You still have, like, for example, you still have Amglo down in, in in Florida that's manufacturing all kinds of halogen lamps, and they manufacture lamps up in um uh Chicago. They make all of the flash lamps that would go into IPL systems and things of that nature. And you've got APT in on the West Coast, you've got ARC on the West Coast, you've got Excelitas on the West Coast, uh well, there's a lot of people you've got xenon corp on the east coast uh hmm. you know there's a, there's a lot of people manufacturing light bulbs still in the united states don't kid yourself
1: hmm. now is there a, uh, a, a a strong market for distributors to go after for this especially i know it depends on what the special take microscope lamps, for example. Who do I go sell those? Greg to? wants to double down on the microscopes. He said it right four times now. already.
2: <laughs> Not, I don't see where a general lighting guy is going to back it in the specialty lighting market. I, I mean, it's... it's, it's you're 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 looking at different type of numbers games and you're going to have to really build up to it the, the key for you to get into that market is you're going to have the have to have the right supply source if you had the right supply source then you could actually go out and sell in that market but as just a you know a distributor it's getting harder and harder because you're competing against amazon you're going to want to you you're going to want to get the business and all of the who induction. ships
0: tom who ships a CFL from Texas to, to Seattle for six bucks? Like, why? Like, Amazon is so weird. Like, who would do that? Like, that's such a waste of time. You're not making any money. The post office is not making any money. And because you didn't make that much money, you didn't pack it right, it's probably going to show up broken. Like, you're I don't gonna, understand.
2: Gonna, I don't you're gonna understand. You're to get into another pet peeve of mine about that whole thing but we'll stay away from that because then oh, i sure. get into i get angry with amazon and stuff because i do think that they're not playing fair with uh really and, come and, on yeah don't get me going come on but, tom what do you mean but, fair you know,
0: of course they're not playing fair they're totally cheating everybody knows it
2: well it's more than than you can imagine uh but I mean, doesn't matter. They they basically taken over all of those markets, and it's it's going to take a lot to uh, displace them and dislodge them. And uh, I mean, it's where America shops right now, and so you just have to treat them as another type of distribution outlet. But I do think getting back to it, if you want to move volume, if you want to move power, it's That the way that you move pallets, the way that you move volumes is really, again, with relationship type of selling. And uh, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of cultivation. And it, it means going out and breaking bread with people. I mean, I used to always instruct my guys at Ushio when I was working there that I wanted them to have lunch, dinner, breakfast with customers every single day.
0: That's actually tougher than you think. Even if you tell them that you're going to pay for it, it's actually tough. It's tough to get your guys to do that.
2: It's not easy. I agree. Listen, it's not easy. I used to have strict strict face-to-face quotas. I wanted X amount of face-to-face meetings over the course of a month. They couldn't do it. But I still had to set a bar for everybody to do because I thought that the most important thing was was getting to know people, getting getting at a relationship established because you had to be in a position to win the ties. You had to be in a position that, you know, if they have a choice between you and two other guys, you're going to be the one that wins. And if all things are equal, why do you win? They so what is like it you back? do
1: now? Yeah, What does what BLC America do?
2: Well, really, the thing is, I don't like to get into these card games where you're sitting down with a thousand people. And right now, this LED world, you're sitting down and playing a card game with a thousand people. I don't like that. I'd rather go up against, you know, three people, four people. I, I want a better chance of winning. So what I do is I do a lot of OEM work. So there's still people that, that are out there designing product in the United States and where they're designing product, I don't care if they need a light bulb or if they need an LED, they sometimes have to go to an outside source to help with that design because they need something unique. It doesn't exist. And they need something that's going to give them a, 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 a 320 nanometer uh, uh, of power and they need a certain level of intensity at that 320 nanometer uh, because they're going to be doing work in terms of you know, skin treatment. And uh, those are the type of people I'll work with because I can develop that lamp. I have, call it virtual factories, but I'm very well tied into uh, a number of Japanese companies because I've been working with them for 30 plus years. And, uh, you know, I'll put the two together. I'll get the lamps developed. I'll, I'll customize lamps and I'll work with an OEM. It's usually a two year or three, three year process sometimes to develop a lamp. So you've got to have a lot of stuff in a hopper to do it, but then you've got a product that's unique. You sell it to that OEM. The OEM has a, you know, a scheduled release every month of X amount. So you pretty much go into, every month, knowing what 80% of your sales numbers are going to be, because you've got scheduled releases to these OEMs every year. So I'm working a little bit differently than your traditional distributor would, because, you know, I probably am split 80-20 again, 80% towards the OEM, 20% towards distribution, as opposed to where you, let's say, a general lighting type of distributor is mostly working on projects, selling, uh, you know, every month trying to develop what projects they're going to be selling into. I don't want to go into a month not knowing what my sales are already going to be or 80% of my sales are going to be. That's why I kind of work in that direction. That's
0: that's why distribution was so was so great in the old days because you could predict your sales with such accuracy. It was like a, almost like a pseudo-subscription business where you just knew how many light bulbs you were going to sell every month. Um, exactly.
2: But they they change the game and they change the game Who's very they?
0: quickly. Who's they? They, them, <laughs> those bastards wrecked my them. business. You know, I'm a bit of a project chaser. I'm a rebate chaser. I have a huge portion of my business that chases rebates, and we, I've done well with it. But you know, when you swing through the trees with your knife in your teeth, you're only as good as the next kill. And so, um, you know, it is what it is. Hey, Scotty, it it, I want you it to. All cue- works out. I want you to cue up that mind-torn road and just let us go out with it for a bit here. Oh! Now, did you write this song, Tom? Music? Yeah.
2: For this piano intro here. Very beautiful. The piano intro was was kind of the idea I had. I wanted to have something to bolt on the front end before we got into the song. Aaron Durr, who's... Phenomenal piano.
0: No, no, keep going, Tom. Keep tell us more about it.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's actually it's a real place uh, in outside of Highland Falls, New York, down by Bear Mountain Bridge. It's called Mine Torn Road, and it's, it connects the uh, West Point out, outskirts of Buffalo. How to trip songs about so they they it the, the plan in the song the song the story of the song was that they planned to double cross a guy on a call it a drug deal but in the process of the double cross the guy's partner triple crossed them, or took the money and ran which was his girlfriend and you know so he thought everybody died and 20 years later he sees her and realizes that the whole thing was a big scam that's the
0: Well, Tom, we appreciate you being a guest on the on the Get a Grip on Lighting t- podcast today. And uh, your new album, Call Me Ishmael, where can people find it?
2: Uh, you can find it everywhere. Amazon, it's on iTunes, uh, Spotify. Uh, you can go on my website, TomSearch.com. I've got uh, CDs for people that still listen to and want hard content those out to them.
0: Um, so. Beautiful. Thank Reggie? you very much. Yeah, man. It's been fun. That's a 45 minute hot blast with Tom Sirzak, folks. Thank you for listening. Energyfocus.com baby. That's E N E R G F O C U S. Dot com. Coming out with their end focus, uh, LED tubes, Greg.
1: That's right. No, additional wiring needed to have wiring the capability or wiring. That you want <laughs> wiring needed that means you can reuse your existing fixture have direct line voltage going to it you can put a new led tube in it and inside of the led tube has a color changing capability and dimming capability without rewiring. so real easy to do cost effective too a lot cheaper than buying new fixtures and all those fancy systems that others are throwing out there they make it easy for you they're focused on it they got it down and it's a great product
0: so go to energyfocus.com. that's e n e r g y f o c u s.com and of course the national association of innovative lighting distributors come on man we got so much stuff going on man whoo i can't the general annual general meeting's coming out next week we got the board elections coming out we're giving out awards we got a rollover on the board we got all manner of stuff greg this association is the hottest thing since sunburn
1: it's an exciting time to be a part of it a lot coming out a lot more in the works be ready get associated join us let's go
0: yeah and of course tommy sir zach tom thanks for coming on the show great album by the way like a legit legit good album
1: you told me that even before this and so he's he's not lying here when we're recording this he's told me that several times so check out that album for sure
0: yeah you know what so unexpected from tom I, I you know the last thing i would have expected from sir zach is he's putting out an album like he's all of a sudden said...
1: coolest guy in lighting what where did that come from tom you didn't tell us that until now
0: <laughs> so mind tour roads <laughs> is like an, for me is a good is a good solid rock and roll song strung mm-hmm. out it's not a typical rock and roll song it's more like a loungy jazzy song that's an amazing song dude like if you just go awesome. and grab that song on its own, that's a, that's good enough, man. Everybody loves that one. My whole family loves it. My daughter sings it in the car. She sings the 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 female duet part. It's it's a good tune, man. So uh, check out uh, Tom Surzak. and he is all the album's called Call Me Ishmael. Check it out. And of course, for you guys, these are my albums, my songs, whatever I'm doing. I don't know if it's art or not, but I appreciate if you listen. Thank you for that. Bye for now.